Hey nerds, this is Will Wheaton. Because this is a podcast, you know what you're listening to, but we do this anyway because we did it on radio before podcasts exist. It's the Candare Podcast and you're listening to it! Welcome to another episode of Candare, your tribute to pop culture. I am Jeremy Colley. I'm Jack Doherty. And I'm Randy Hartbrook. And we have another very special guest for you guys this week. My God, the IMDb list this guy has is crazy. And just to name a few things, uh, he was in Toy Soldiers. He was in Flubber. Uh, he had a show, I think it was on Sci-Fi. Was it the Will, uh, the Will Wheaton Project? Remember that show? It was kind of like, uh, like E-Soup a little bit. Yes. Uh, the Ready Room, which is on Paramount Plus, like mm-hmm. the Star Trek after show. Tabletop, the tabletop uh, game series. It was that was just on YouTube, or was that Twitch? Or that was I can't on, remember. I don't remember what channel it was on. I remember I caught one one or two episodes one time. Maybe it was Amazon. It might have been. I can't recall. But he's probably best known as uh, either Gordy in the movie Stand By Me, playing a character of himself, Will Wheaton, in The Big Bang Theory, but probably best known as Wesley Crusher in Star Trek The Next Generation. We welcome actor, writer, producer, gamer, podcaster, blogger, Will Wheaton to the show. Yeah. I forgot about Toy Soldiers. I love that movie. Yeah, that was a good yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah. He's done quite a bit, and uh, we get to have an amazing conversation with him about gaming. We get to yeah. talk about his book, Still Just a Geek, and then uh, just indulge ourselves with some uh, nerdy <laughs> questions toward mm-hmm. the end. But yeah, what a great time. So we're really excited for you guys to hear that. But before we can play it, you know the drill. Don't forget to find us on Twitter at CandairPod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air. And if you like what we're doing, show some support. Head over to uh, CandairPodcast.com. There's a merch tab there. Get you shirts, mugs, stickers, hats. There's also a Patreon button that'll, for 5 to $10 a month, get you access to a ton and ton, a ton, a ton of extra content, people. So much content. So much content. <laughs> Hours of, uh... How many? What are they? Hours of content. <laughs> and if you don't have the uh, financial means to support us, you can just uh, leave us a review on your uh, podcast player of choice. And it looks like we just got a few new reviews on uh, iTunes, yes, we seemingly. Did. So thank you to you guys who uh, did that because it, it does help. It helps us get more exposure. Like we always say, we're not just trying to feel good about ourselves. That's why Randy's peacocking over here. <laughs> you know me. Shining his nails on his shirt. Like, Look it up. Hey, we good. And uh, also check us out on evergreenpodcast.com. Check us out, all the other great shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's good listens. Good listens indeed, Randy. All right, well, with everything having been said, let's just cut right over to our conversation with Will Wheaton. Thanks so much, Will, for taking time to be on the show here with us today. It's really an honor to be talking with you. Thank you. And I got to say, I'm kind of fixated on everything that's happening behind you. What's what's going on back there, man? (laughs) So directly behind me is the Arcade 1-Up Tron machine that my son Ryan and I assembled a few months ago. Oh, wow. Uh, Really? Yep. It's just kind of what, like, 
there is a version of me who like pokes his head up in my brain every day and says, can you believe we own arcade machines? We want to. And I'm like, buddy, we're doing that because we worked real, real, real hard for it. Yeah. And like every time we're ready to give up, you didn't. So that's the Tron machine that Ryan and I built. Then next to it is a multi-arcade machine. It's a, think of it as a very fancy MAME cabinet okay. wow. um, awesome. that has a ton of, ton of games in it. Um, and then over my other shoulder is just a little bit of my uh, game library. <laughs> a um, little bit? Yeah. <laughs> I'm organized by color because um, I thought that would be really fun. So it's sort of here. I'll just show you. So it kind of goes like that. Oh, right? wow. That is Holy awesome. cow. Isn't um, uh, and then the other side of the room isn't really cleaned up. <laughs> um, I've been doing all this press and like every day I'm like, all right, I'm going to put that stuff away and get those things cleaned up and put away and stuff. And I'm like, oh, but I've just done six hours of interviews. I'm going to play yeah, video games. Yeah. I haven't gotten quite around. No, exactly. Um, that's but like. anyway, thank, thank you for noticing. Um, uh, I, uh, I make a, a, an effort every every day, and I do this deliberately every night before I go to sleep to be grateful for the things that I have in my life. And I run down sure. this list of things in my head that these are the things that I am grateful for. So I remember to be thankful and, and exist in gratitude. And one of the things that I am constantly grateful for is that um, I have arcade machines and tabletop games. <laughs> uh, yeah, because yeah. who would have ever guessed? Uh, and, and, a yeah. room, and a game room that is just for fun. I've seen you mention your your uh, tabletop game collection and other interviews and stuff like that. Are there any like holy grails or any like gems you're on the lookout for? Or? There's an original Dark Tower. Okay. Um, uh, up there uh, on top of my Star Trek: The Next Generation Collector's Edition Monopoly set. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then down and then down down the shelves from that a little ways is uh, a special edition of Takenoko, Um That is a massive box. The panda in Takenoko is about that big. Oh wow! Uh, it's a it's a beautiful like uh, 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 you know they only made a few of them, but it's signed by Antoine Bauza, which if you're a game nerd is kind of awesome. The two things that I have that I absolutely cherish and love more than anything else are um, my original D&D &D Red Basic Rules book. Okay. Um, and uh, I have a D&D &D white box with the three original books in it. And it was given to me as a gift from, uh, from a person who I, I, I don't know if he ever said, you can say I gave this to you, but a dude who you would be like, what gave me this? Uh, and it was his. And he was like, I just know how much you love D&D &D, and I feel like you should have this. So those are the things that I that I'm really, really grateful for and really love. Awesome. Nice. Wow. Now you got me even more curious. <laughs> I've, I've seen online uh, about the Will Wheaton dice curse. Is this something yeah. that still looms over you? Yeah, I was at a convention this weekend. For those who don't know, um, when you roll a 20-sided die, you have a mathematically, you have a 5% chance that you'll land on any number, which means that, uh, you know, it should be an even Gaussian distribution of numbers as you roll them. I roll so statistically improbably poorly <laughs> that it has, it's become almost a trope. Um, uh, I don't know why. When things are left to random chance, 
especially as it pertains to dice, particularly as it pertains to the 20-sided die, I roll like ass. And I know <laughs> that it's just, you know, there's just, there's no, there's no logic to it. There's no pattern to it. It's just random chance. It's just statistically yeah. unlikely, yet it continues happening to me. So I have made the following choice. The universe that we exist in uh, needs to be balanced, right? Like uh, whenever someone goes into the land of the lost, someone comes out of the land of the lost so that the continuum is meeting, right? So when extraordinary bad luck is put into the world, for somewhere, extraordinary good luck also happens in vice versa. So when I roll a crit fail, um, uh, in a game, that means that somewhere else in the world, somebody who desperately needed that critical success got it, and I took the hit for that. <laughs> I have as much evidence to support that as I have literally any other theory about why I roll dice so poorly. That is the one I choose to believe in. When I go to cons, people will ask me if I will curse their dice. And uh, I have to have them. Uh, and what I always say is, do you fully understand what you are asking? And they never do. No, and I'm like, no. do you understand that the curse doesn't attach itself to the dice? The curse attaches itself to the person. Mm -hmm. So, like, I'm going to roll these dice for you, and they're going to roll like crap. And, and you're going to think it's funny and you're going to go home and you're not going to put them in the northeastern corner of a room where the sun never shines, surrounded by a circle of salt, as I am advising you. <laughs> you aren't gonna What's going to happen is you're going to wonder why all of a sudden you're not rolling well and you're going to blame it on me. So I want you to fully understand and affirm back to me vocally that you know what you are asking me to do and that you release me from all liability. And they always do. And they are Hell always yeah. horrified. And they and they can never believe it when it happens. At this, uh, I was at a con last weekend and uh, uh, a couple of folks asked me to roll their dice. And uh, I will tell them, now listen, there's a great chance that right now, because it absolutely doesn't mean anything at all, that I'm going to like roll like a boss. Like I'm just going to crush everything because like, oh, it yeah. doesn't matter. Right. That's a, one of the ways the curse expresses itself. So don't get ahead and like, don't get all excited and think, oh, there's no curse. So I said this to a guy and rolled a 19 and he was like, what? And I was like, I know it doesn't mean anything. The guy behind him was like, will you curse my dice? Sure. I rolled a 20. The girl behind him was like, will you curse my dice? I sure will. And I rolled another 20. And I was like, OK, so what is happening is all the good rolls are getting used up right now again they aren't there that's how this works one of the really fun things that i really love is when someone's like will you curse these dice and i tell them if i touch them they're ruined forever and they have told me this has happened more than once i know i'm counting on it these dice belong to my dungeon master and i of their bag in the hopes that it would wreck you know, wreck their everything. I'm like, all right, well, I feel like you've just made me an accessory to a crime. Wow. Sign this release. It's best to me vocally that you release me from all liability. Yeah, that's incredible, man. I and for people at home who th like think like, oh, that's exaggeration or something. No, get online. There's a YouTube video where you can watch this curse afflict Will. Oh, an actuary did a table. Um, an a legitimate actuary did a table and showed like the expected results from an average dice roller and my actual results. So they were like, "Yeah, this is crazy. This person would never get an actuary." <laughs> oh, that's great.
I mean, for us, not so much for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny to talk about. But. So here's, here's the thing, though. It brings us so much joy to so many people. <laughs> and, like, ultimately, playing the game is about spending time with friends and telling a story together. So if my character just can't get it done, I get to narrate why. When I did it on Critical Role, it took me a while to kind of like put it all together because I was kind of shell-shocked from how poorly I rolled in that entire thing. But I realized in retrospect, oh wait, I'm like sort of like, I'm this like kind of belligerent, dwarven, barbarian dude. He couldn't do anything because he was just epically hung over. Like that's why he was- <laughs> Totally so makes weak. sense then. It makes all kinds of sense, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Oh yeah. This is a thing when I've, I've been, I've had the privilege sometimes of speaking people sort of about like in depth about role playing right like let's have a big deep dive into bringing people into the hobby and what do you do once you're there blah 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 what i always tell people is like the thing that's amazing about it is it's really collaborative storytelling and and when things don't go the way you want them to go awesome narrate how it went because it makes those times when you nail it so much cooler right like you got to go in and out of things you you have to have the setbacks for the triumphs to matter yeah. otherwise it becomes competency porn and that is boring <laughs> good point though good way to look at it i'd be sulking in the corner for sure anyway let's talk about your book man still just a geek Great read, man. And in this Thank book, you. you revisit your uh, in comment on your 2004 memoir, Just a Geek, where you talk about your struggles with abuse and uh, un undiagnosed depression while being forced to be in the Hollywood spotlight. Can you tell us a bit about the book and uh, just how it came to be? In 2000, I started a blog. And just for a bit of context, in 2000, social media didn't exist. YouTube was about four years away from existing. High-speed internet barely existed, and at high-speed, it was 56K. Um, yeah. it, it, is, it is, you can't imagine how slow that is now, but back then, it was a miracle. Right. And uh, if you were going to have a presence online, if you were going to uh, uh, put anything out there at all, it was going to be words because full motion video was incredibly expensive and extremely difficult to do, and words were the way that we did it. So I had to teach myself from absolute zero how to build a website, which meant I had to learn HTML and I had to learn a little bit of CSS. I had to learn how to use tables. I had to learn all this stuff that I didn't want to know so that I could have a place to publish the things that I wanted to write. I've compared it to people, those of us who had websites in the, in the aughts, um, we were um, systems administrators, um, uh, and like web guys, the way that people who own classic cars in the 70s and 80s had to be mechanics, even if they had no interest in mechanics at all. It's just like, you got to fix it because things break all the time. Sure. So uh, I started writing a blog and it was new and it was novel and it got a little bit of attention. And uh, uh, I just started telling stories, right? I was writing about being a, uh, at the time a stepfather. I'm a, I'm a fully, I'm a full dad. I'm full. My kids asked me to adopt them when they came of age, but at the nice. time I was the stepdad and I was a relatively new husband and I was new to having a family. And, um, I was just talking about those experiences and I had this, these experiences of like working on Star Trek and being an actor. And I just talked about those a little bit. After a while, I'd written so much stuff that I got a bunch of pressure to do a book. 
So I collected some of those things and I turned the, some of those blog posts and I turned them into a book and that was published in 2004 and it's called Just a Geek. And it's very much the story of uh, starting my blog and kind of coming to terms with where Star Trek lives in my life and what my relationship to Wesley Crusher is and uh, um, how I am at the moment I wrote that book really thinking about leaving acting maybe behind and becoming more of a writer full time. The book was published and uh, fives of people read it and everybody forgot about it and life went on. A couple of years ago, I had written a novella and gave it to my agent and we just shopped it and no one was interested in it with the exception of one editor who said, listen, this this uh, this story that you have is a great story. It's missing pieces. Um, that conversation isn't important to this. But he ultimately said, hey, listen, I loved your book, Just a Geek. Have you looked at it recently? And I said, "I no, I haven't. Um, and he said, I have. And he said, I think there are things in there, knowing what I know about you now, there are things in that book that I think you will want to revisit. There are things that I think are kind of gross, but I also see these areas where I, he said to me, I know that you've been really open and, and outspoken about being uh, uh, living with depression and, and, and post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, 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 surviving childhood abuse. He said, I see this, all these areas in this book where like, that's a big part of your story that you didn't tell when you wrote this 20 years ago. Do you want to tell that now? And I thought, yeah, I actually really do. Uh, um, and I looked back at it and thought the very best way to do all of it was to annotate it. So if you can imagine that I, I am looking at my book and reading the book I wrote in 2004, and then every now and then stopping and looking up to you and saying, okay, now I just wanna, let's just talk about this a little bit. Here's stuff that I did not realize was going on then. Um, I can't believe I thought that this thing where I'm punching down was okay. I'm just like an edgelord tryhard here and it's embarrassing, those things. That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book are notable speeches and essays um, uh, that I have written um, over the last few years about everything from being part of the Star Trek universe to uh, uh, my wife almost dying because she was misdiagnosed by a lazy doctor to uh, uh, living with mental illness. Um, and uh, acknowledging and speaking up loudly and unashamedly all of the child abuse that I endured. Uh, the big, big, giant, massive lie of my entire life that I struggled with forever until I finally went, no, my truth is true, was that my mom made me believe that I wanted to be an actor when I was seven years old. And even if I said, I really want to do this at seven, I know that very shortly thereafter, I said, I don't want to do this. Right. And she was like, no, you have to. I know that my mom was taking me to the unemployment office to file unemployment claims to put to support the family. Um, and my right wing talk radio dad openly mocked and disdained people who got unemployment. And like, I was around that all the time. And uh, I grew up in a house where I was not loved unconditionally. And um, uh, I was just kept saying, I don't wanna do this. And they kept making me do it. And then when I finally booked Star Trek and I thought, okay, 
this is going to be the thing that makes dad love me. This will be the reason dad finally cares about me. This will be the thing that makes mom happy. So she stops making me responsible for her emotions and feelings. Like this is going to solve everything. I'm going to be on this show. I'm not going to have to audition anymore. I'm going to get to do this full time and everything's going to be great. And of course it wasn't because nothing is going to fix the fact that my parents are narcissists and my dad's a piece of shit. Um, then toxic fandom came after me mm. and that toxic fandom was so hurtful and so cruel and so relentless and nobody stood up for me. Just nobody ever stood up for me one time. And it really mattered. And it was extremely important. And I value it greatly. Gene Roddenberry stood up for me and I really mm. greatly appreciate it. Right. That's in the book. He also stood up for me at a con once where someone was like giving him a hard time about Wesley. And he was like, I think Wesley is great. And if you don't like him, don't watch my show. Like, okay, awesome. Wow. That is great. But when all of fandom, as far as I know, is coming at me with, we hate the character. We hate you. Um, you're awful. You're ruining the show. All of those things. That's all landing on a 14 and 15 and 16 year old who is, has been emotionally abused his entire life. My father's physical abuse started around that time. That was when he really started getting really physical with me and like shoving me. Um, his favorite thing to do was like jab me in my sternum with his finger while he yelled at me. Um, uh, uh, more than once he picked me up by my neck and shook me back and forth. Just like, like all of that was going on at all that time. And now all these people that I've never met are telling me that I'm the worst thing in the world. What has my experience been to that point in my life? I guess I only have value in this world if I'm a famous actor, because that's what I'm getting from mom. Nothing I do is good enough for anybody at all, and I should just shut up and die, according to dad. And now here comes fandom to just be like, we hate, we hate Wesley and we hate you. It was so hard. It hurt imagine. so much. And on top of it all, I was just a kid, and I was such a huge fan of all of it. I loved Star Trek. I loved being part of it. It was it was amazing. And like uh, all of that got in the way. Right. And it was allowed to get in the way because it started in my home. If it had not started in my home, it would have been really different. It'd be a whole different story. You know, uh, I probably would have stayed on the show longer than I did and and would have grown up to be a really different person. But as we say, in Next Generation, in Tapestry, as Wesley says in Picard, about the universe being an exquisite tapestry, you cannot pluck a single thread or the whole thing comes unraveled. Right. Um, a big part of writing Still Just a Geek and then narrating it for the audiobook was very much providing for myself the healing and the, and, and, and the validation and, uh, and the growth um, that was withheld from me because I just didn't really have any support until I was married and realized my kids deserve a dad. Oh my God, I never learned how to be a dad because I didn't have a dad, I had a bully. Well, I better learn how to be a dad and I better learn how to do it real fast. And it was through that that I realized, wow, like I, I walked into my kitchen one night and I told my wife, I don't, I don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen soon. I'm going to have to sit down and have a real hard, like from the depths of my soul cry because I have accepted that my dad doesn't love me.
and my dad doesn't even like me. And then I had the cry right away. Mm -hmm. um, I can talk about it now with sort of a little bit of a detachment because I've just come to accept it. It's just part of my life. Right. right. Um, but it sucks. It still sucks. I ended contact with them uh, uh, around six years ago. I'm really sad to say that it made all the difference. Sure. It really allowed me to become mean instead of the scapegoat in, in their dysfunctional family. Right. Not the road you wanted to take, but have to take. And yeah. Understandable, man. We're going to take a quick break to jump to commercial, but don't go anywhere when we come back. More with Will. Stick around. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotus, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chipotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You know, it, listening to the audio book, uh, you can really hear the journey you're going on with your younger self. I mean, there's times where you're really, you stop hard to cringe. There's times where you seem to get choked up to the point where you have to get away from the microphone. And there's other times yeah. you're laughing, remembering Fondly, I, I can't imagine this writing process was anywhere close to easy. It was really hard. Um, in the text, at the, in the afterward, I write that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this now. I've been working on it for a very long time. I've had to take months away from it because parts of it were really difficult. I really hoped that I would feel a catharsis. I don't. I only feel re-traumatized. And I didn't know why that was. Then I went into the studio and recorded the audiobook. And when the audiobook was done, I had discovered the catharsis and what I don't know what physically happens. I don't know what existentially happens. Um, I live in this weird twilight area where like, I do not believe in a single supernatural thing. I'm incredibly disdainful of supernatural things. Um, I don't believe in superstitions. I love science. And if it can't be tested and proved in a lab, I don't want to know about it. At the same time, I am a storyteller. And storytelling involves myth. And myth involves archetypes. And it involves imagination and symbolism and all of those things. When I spoke all of the things I wrote down, it released anger and pain and fear and anxiety that I had been carrying around for a really long time. I don't know how this works. I don't know why it works, but I felt like I was giving a voice to every person I ever was who was silenced either by my incredibly manipulative, deeply selfish mother, or by my bully father, 
or by an industry that really just kind of wanted to take as much away from me as it possibly could. People talk a lot, as I've, as I've been promoting this and I've been talking about this a lot, people talk about surviving Hollywood. And I want to be really clear, like Hollywood's not inherently bad. The entertainment industry is not inherently toxic. Like there's plenty of kids that work in the industry with wonderful, loving parents and deeply loving families who go on to have amazing adult lives. I had shitty parents who put me into a place where shitty people take advantage of unprotected kids. Um, as I wrote in the book, they were real fine with my sister and me being physically abused on the set of a movie. They just let that happen and didn't seem to have any problem with it at all. But I am really grateful that I did have some very good close friends who were older than me. I had some adults who were looking out for me. I had gaming in my life and I was a nerd. So I was never at parties where predators were. I was never at clubs where access to like alcohol and drugs was really given to kids. I avoided all of that. And the thing is, I was in so much existential pain. I talked about this on TV. I was in so much existential pain. I was so sad. I was hurting all the time. I was so lonely. Um, I contemplated taking my own life many times. And um, I'm really grateful that there were, there were just a handful of adults that I trusted who were there, who I could lean on, who I never told any of this to. I kept it all to myself. But just by being there, they kind of saved me. So, so is this, I mean, you're obviously not going to get rid of all the demons that, you know, your past has, you know, given you, but yeah. would you say this has been therapeutic though? I mean, it seems like yeah. you're in a much better place than uh, you were before you wrote this book. It's interesting. So demons is an interesting word to use. Um, in, I guess I, I say demon I too, because I I don't, in, in, no, I, I, just, I don't know where it originated, but this, this, this mythological idea that if you know a demon's name, it cannot harm you. If you know a demon's name, it has to leave if you tell it to leave. Mm -hmm. A big part of this process has been not just recognizing who the demons are, but naming them. And the more clearly I can name them, the more thoroughly I have been able to banish them. There's some that are still around. Um, I have worked very, very, very hard, deliberately, mindfully, uh, with like extreme intention to stay very much in like a middle path mm -hmm. and stay away from the extremes of like, um, I'm going to run away because I'm terrified or I'm going to fucking murder you. Like those are the two extremes that trauma survivors tend to exist in. We tend to, our fight, flight, freeze response and our fawn responses are our hyper attuned you know and um uh it's like i created this demon there's another thing in demonology where you can summon a demon right right, right. it's gonna and the demon's gonna do what you want it to do but it's going to extract a price that is so terrible you cannot comprehend what that price is and whatever you however you think you can pay the price it is going to exact such a toll from you it's probably not worth summoning the demon when I was a little kid, I summoned a demon to protect me, right? Um, like a, a, the closest I can come to is in Japanese mythology, there's a character called an, I, I, I always say it wrong, 
Onryo, uh, which is this vengeful spirit that tends to rise up out of someone who has been terribly, savagely wronged. Um, and, and they are uh, uh, just insatiable. They destroy everything. And uh, I created this vengeful spirit inside of me to like fight back when people were attacking me. And unfortunately, that demon would just sometimes start fighting on its own and I would lose control of it. Hmm. And I had to work really, really, really hard to identify it, recognize why it was created, and then tell it as part of this long therapeutic process, listen, I am really grateful that you were there for me when I needed you, but I don't need you anymore. Right. Those people won't hurt me like they used to. And you, you did everything that I needed you to do, and I release you, and, and I let you go. That sounds really easy. It took a couple of years for all of that to happen with moments of me just blowing up at completely innocent people for no good reason. Um, uh, because like that was that demon like asserting itself, you know, right. just like that person upset me, that person wronged me. So like the only way that I can respond is to either freeze, flee, or tear their head off. And I never really knew what was gonna happen. Um, and it is, it's, as I understand it, that is real common among trauma survivors. That sense of like, oh, I'm out of control. And like every one of these responses that I have, it gets, it accomplishes what I need, which is get me out of this situation. But it always leaves me feeling terrible when it's over. I need to work through all of that. Mm -hmm. So a big, a big thing for me was identifying the demons, naming the different demons, and like telling them, I, I see you and I like, you're, go, leave now, I, you know, I dispel you. And it turns out that learning those, like to keep the metaphor going, to learning those spells, acquiring the components to cast them is an extraordinary amount of work. Hard work, but work that's very much worth doing. That's so awesome, though, to uh, to to see. I mean, you look seemingly very happy. I mean, I don't know you, obviously, but <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, just I, I I've been going through the book the past uh, week and a half, and uh, just I don't know. It's just an incredible journey. I, I want to say congratulations to you, but uh, you know, I don't know if that's Thank the you. right word or not. Um, I think it's a fine word. Um, I'm really grateful that I got to tell my story. Yeah, I'm really grateful that the little boy who was so terrified and so alone and, 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 and so just abandoned, finally got to speak up and say like, this was never okay. Right. And as I, and as I expected, when, when, when my story made it back to my parents, <laughs> dad couldn't be bothered to comment on it at all. And my mom said she was shocked and had no idea, um, which is mm -hmm. really common real common from narcissists um, uh, and, and, and real common from people who tell themselves gigantic lies because if the gigantic lie falls apart, everything you built on top of it falls apart too. Right. So like, I do not forgive them, but I don't need them. I kind of like let them go. Right. Um, and um, yeah, and, I, and I, I, I just, I feel like really, really grateful that I feel really grateful that this thing that has hurt me my whole life is out and is just out. It's not in me anymore. I am not carrying my father's rage and shame. I am not carrying my mother's lie. Um, 
uh, I'm living my life. I'm Ryan and Nolan's dad. I'm Ann's husband. Like that's who I want to be. And, uh, and that is that, that's, that's the person who, who wrote this book. And that's the person I get to be when I get to work on whatever the next one is. Well, it's a damn good book and I encourage people to check it out. And I, there was a few other things from the book that I wanted to ask you about just, uh, just about, for instance, the first one was uh, you said on the set of stand by me that Uh you and uh, everyone else there could feel that, you know, you guys were really making something special here. Yeah. And, uh, what was it exactly that was happening? You was feeling, what were you feeling around you that, uh, gave you guys that feeling? I don't know. It's just something in the air. I don't even know what to compare it to. Everyone on the crew, Rob, the writers, Andy, the producer, everyone that I interacted with, there was a calm, gentle kindness about them that made me feel like I already believed that no one would bother making a movie if it wasn't going to be a good movie. I didn't understand that I was only 12. I didn't understand what that meant. I just thought, well, if someone's going to go and make a movie and if Rob Reiner, who's famous from TV, (laughs) like it's going to be a good movie. And I love, I mean, I was on, like I said, I was only 12, but I loved the script. I read a script about kids being friends and showing up for each other. I didn't understand any of the other parts of the script that are super clear to me as an adult. Um, uh, And I was just really excited to be there. Rob made me feel like he was constantly proud of me. And he, he made sure I knew that. No man in my life had ever made that effort with me. Not my father, not my grandfather, none of my uncles, nobody ever made an effort to make me feel special sure, and worthy. Rob made me feel special and worthy. And I've talked a lot about how I felt like we were making something really special. We were making something beautiful and meaningful. And I wonder if what I actually mean when I say that is that I felt special when we were making the movie. I felt like I was making something that was special because Rob made me feel special for being part of it. And that was something I had never experienced in my life to that point. So I wish there was one thing that I could be like, well, you know, on this day of production, we all knew. And it's just like, you just don't, you know? Um, It makes total sense though. I mean, just good feeling from one person just carries you through the whole thing. Yeah, had there been like eight, one toxic person on set, it probably could have dragged yeah. everybody down and the whole experience down, yeah. Jerry O'Connell tells, you know, Jerry's story is that uh, Kiefer Sutherland scared him to death. He still scares uh, me yes. to death yeah. in that movie. It's so funny to me because he didn't scare me at all. He There was nothing scary about him. There was nothing scary about any of the big kids. They were all... They were just big kids. They were adults. They were, they were fun. They were friendly. Um... I knew that Kiefer's character was mean, but I knew he wasn't mean. I don't know why it was different for me. I just didn't feel any, any of that stuff on the set, except really from Corey. Corey bullied me a lot. Really? Yeah. I forgive Corey for that. Um, I sincerely 100% forgive him. Corey was in so much pain. As bad as my life was, Corey's was so much worse. Right. And um, as bad as my parents were, his were so much worse. 
and it sucked at the time. I didn't like him when we did the movie, um, but I've let all I've let it all go. I really see very very clearly what was going on, and I've had to do this stuff as part of my PTSD recovery, where I create in my head this like bifurcation of who I am now and who I was then, and then there's this time where I and then when I work through these traumatic memories, one of the ways that I sort of get through the trauma is to remap my brain and like put adult me there to help child me, you know, and like stand up in ways that 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 I couldn't stand up and protect myself in ways that I wasn't protected. I want to do the same thing for young Corey. Yeah. Um, Because I just very clearly see all of it. And I see where, you know, there's this line in Stand By Me where Chris says kids lose everything if there isn't someone there to look out for them. And it's deeply prophetic. We're going to take a quick break to jump to commercial, but don't go anywhere when we come back. More with Will. Stick around. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Another thing you talk about in your book is, you know, how for many years there, you wanted to distance yourself from Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, You know, you didn't want to be on the show. You didn't want to really just be affiliated with it at all. And it was at least one of the things that was start bringing you back around was the Star Trek experience in Las Vegas. And, um, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious if it was simply just walking onto a bridge that looked like where you used to work or was there more to it than that? What, what were you experiencing that day? It was that it was walking into, it was. So at that moment in my life, let's see, I was 29 when we did that and I was eight years out, not a long time, like about a third of my life out from having left Star Trek and having struggled like crazy from, from day one and not really understanding why I was struggling. I mean, it's really obvious to me now I was struggling because it's never something I wanted to do. So I wasn't fully committed to it. Um, and, and it was traumatic for me every single time I did anything related to acting. Um, and, uh, and it was just, it was just so unbelievably hard. Um, I wanted to get away from that toxic fandom the same way I wanted to get away from my dad, but I had kind of conflated them into one thing and just put it all in toxic fandom. I had just taken everything, all of the pain that my parents caused for me and, 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 and let toxic fandom become the avatar for all of that. Then when I had that opportunity to go work in a feature film and it wasn't going to affect Star Trek in any way at all, it was just a thing for me to like give me another piece of my career and Rick Berman deliberately sabotaged it. I just felt like this was supposed to solve everything. Star Trek was supposed to fix all of it. It was supposed to be like, like this 
terrific change from everything I've always experienced. And this guy's treating me exactly the same way my parents do. Well, fuck everything about that. I quit. And I did. And I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of counsel about that. I didn't have, I didn't have people I could talk to who had credibility with me, who could give me good advice. I wasn't in a place where I could receive good advice. And I had very much been infantilized um, and just kind of kept helpless um, by my mom. So when I walked onto that stage, when I walked onto that set at Star Trek The Experience, as I wrote in the book, you know, I wasn't expecting it to be what it was. I thought it was going to be a motion simulator ride. Right. The closest thing that I can that I can uh, describe that will maybe give give someone who is not me a sense of the emotional impact of that moment is imagine that you step through you 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 go to a place expecting a show and when you open the door wait a minute this is my high school and it's exactly the way i left it nothing has changed all the same people are here I've changed, but it is exactly the same. And I get to look at it with an entirely fresh set of eyes. That's what that was like for me. Hmm. And that moment, as I wrote in the book, was when I realized I don't hate Star Trek. I love Star Trek. I don't hate Wesley. I love Wesley. I hate all this other stuff. And all that other stuff was so traumatic and so painful that it overwhelmed the things that I love. And it overwhelmed the good. And it overwhelmed me being in there, remembering all of the things I had forgotten was extraordinarily consequential for me and something I am so grateful I got to experience. You mentioned Wesley Crusher being on Picard, showing yeah. up in the last episode of season two. What was it like to step back into Wesley's shoes? It was awesome. Yeah. It looked um, like you were having a good time. <laughs> boy, spoilers. Well, you've had your chance, man. <laughs> it, was, it was great. Um, I got to be the Wesley I love. After all that time of being somebody else's Wesley, that was my Wesley. I don't know if that makes any sense. Makes perfect um, sense, yeah. He was to Corey in that scene, who I really wanted him to be for me. He was for Corey in that scene who I try to be for anyone who ever needs me to show up for them. And I loved it. I loved that the way they wrote him and the way they allowed me to, to play him was so wise and peaceful right. and, and calm and gentle. Like, that is the person I want to be. Like, I want to be him so badly. And that is the person I try so hard to constantly be. And that is the person who who kind of shows up for me and is like, dude, you got really worked up today about a thing. And I'm like, I know it's a trauma response. I have to like, I got it. That's something I need to work on. But that part of me, the Wesley part of me, Wesley, the traveler part of me is like, we all fuck up, man. It's okay. I'm here for you. It's yes, going to be all right. All of space and time to do all of this together. And more than anything else, Wesley Crusher belongs to me again. Right. For a really long time, Wesley Crusher belonged to alt.wesley. Die. 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 And that sucked. For a really long time, I felt like I had to constantly defend Wesley 
from people who were never going to be happy with whatever his defense was, which was exactly my relationship with the man who was my father. This Wesley and the existence of this Wesley, let me take it all back and let me have complete ownership over him again and go forward for the rest of my life sharing the celebration of his return that took me by such delightful, incredible surprise when that episode aired. Congratulations. I hope we see more of you, too. I, I want to see more Wesley. I was more hoping that he would show up. I mean, I, I joke about it with the, uh, you know, with the writers for all, for all the shows, right? Like, everybody knows. I'm like, you know, if you need somebody who can travel through all of space and time, uh, I know a guy. I'd be happy to make an interview. <laughs> <laughs> I have lots of ideas, fun fan fiction ideas that I've actually written just because it's fun for me to write them. Um, and... Uh, They've been um, they've been really satisfying to write. Uh, feels really really good to have exercised and and completely purged any of the residual lingering. I'm just going to call it gross feelings that ever existed toward Wesley from me. He didn't deserve those feelings any more than I deserved the way people treated me back then. It's also been really great, you know, 50-year-old father of two 30-year-olds. Um, <laughs> it's, right? Um, it's really awesome to meet young people who are like, I watched Next Gen with my parents. And when I say young people, I mean people in their late 30s who are like, you know, I watched <laughs> Next Gen with my parents. And like, and, and like, we, you know, like, I just loved it. And like, I wanted to be like Wesley. I thought he was great. I thought he was really smart and really cool. And, um, and then I, you know, and I, I meet people who are just like, they're so excited that Wesley was back in Picard and and, and back the way he was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to feel celebrated, to, to feel that kind of love, and to finally understand that for every cruel, toxic fanboy who was awful to me, there were like 60 kids who were just like, I love this. I'm a lifelong Star Trek fan because of this character. When I was a kid, I would go to cons and sometimes I got to sit next to Jimmy doing and some, and every time I sat next to Jimmy, dozens of people told him, I'm an engineer because of you. I work for NASA because of you. I work for Rockwell because of you. I I work for blah, blah, because of you. And I thought, gosh, that has got to be the coolest thing. Never occurred to me that people would say that about Wesley. And it happens every time I go to a con now. I mean, incredible. somebody who does a job that I think is the coolest freaking job in the world. And they do it, if not specifically because of Wesley, they do it because of Star Trek. And just the privilege of being part of that, the, the privilege of, of, of being like, I get to be the guy who played Wesley Crusher. Like, Wesley doesn't exist without me. I, I get to own that. That's cool. I love that. And I'm so happy and I am so grateful that I was given the opportunities that I needed to take all of that back and put my arms around it and love it and protect it and keep it alive um, in a way that's really positive and, and wonderful instead of letting it be anything else. But the worst thing of all would have been to just leave it as like a painful memory. Yeah. One final question. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So being a lifelong nerd, what have you enjoyed the most about sharing with uh, Ryan and Nolan as far as like pop culture and stuff like that? My favorite thing that I've shared with Ryan was a punk show. <laughs> I took him to see Reverend Horton Heat. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> X with the original lineup and the damned who played all of machine gun etiquette start to finish. And then Captain Sensible played Jet Boy, Jet Girl with Freaking Mind. My, <laughs> my kids grew up listening to punk rock with me. Like, that's just, that's they awesome. love it because that's what they grew up around, right? Like, that that's is nice. that's the soundtrack of their childhood. If you ask them, they would be like, all dad listened to was the Pixies and Bad Religion and, you know. <laughs> so um, getting to share that with him was extremely meaningful for me. It's not necessarily a nerd thing like going to Comic-Con or uh, going to space camp or something like that. But I've always said being a nerd is not about the way you love. It's not about the thing you love. It's about the way you love the thing. Right. That's something that I really deeply, massively, incredibly love is punk rock and and, uh, uh, Southern California punk rock specifically. And getting to share that with him and, and just seeing him like love being at a punk show was really, really special for me. Um, Nolan, he doesn't really love the same kinds of nerd things that I love. <laughs> Nolan doesn't really, he doesn't really love science fiction like I do. And he doesn't really love gaming like I do. But when he was in high school, my friend Corey Doctorow wrote a book called Little Brother that I loved. It was anti-authoritarian and it was pro-critical thinking. And it was just a really great way to introduce a young person to the concept of do not trust authority because it demands it. Right. And I gave that to him and I was like, and Nolan didn't like to read. And I was just like, Nolan, he would have been in like eighth grade when that book came out when he was in seventh grade, he didn't want to stand for the pledge of allegiance. And we were like, you don't have to. And the teacher called. And was like, was ready for us. She was like, well, Nolan won't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. And we were like, okay. And is there anything else? (laughs) (laughs) And she was beside herself. She could not believe that he was, what did she say? That he was being defiant or, or something rather. My wife said he's expressing his fundamental rights as a human to not participate in uh, a ritual that he does not agree with. And, uh, and she said, what does he not agree with? And Nolan said, I really have a problem with you making me pledge allegiance to a nation under God because I don't believe in that. Wow. And, uh, and we were like, you can't force him. He gets to make his own choices. And I said, like, you know, if you're taking a principled stand and you're not doing this for the purposes of being disruptive, I really support this. And he was like, I just don't think it's right. And, you know, you've talked about how public school is not where religion belongs. Um, it's interesting because as an adult, Nolan has actually found a religious faith that he actually really loves that's deeply meaningful to him. But like that particular version of it was just not, he didn't fly with him at all. So I knew that he was maybe primed a little bit for a book that was kind of about just like not going along to get along. Sure. And I gave it to him and he read that cover to cover until he finished it. Like he just never stopped reading it. 
And then I heard him for months tell his friends about it, really? about how smart it was and how great it was and how it like made him think and all that stuff. And I really enjoyed that. What a cool feeling nice. as a dad. That's awesome. One of the really, but one of the really great things that's really, that's kept our family together. We have worked very, we worked very hard to be a family. The kid's biological father is a monster and uh, was just so disruptive to our lives and manipulative with them. And it was more important to him that he use the kids, weaponize the kids to disrupt our lives and hurt their mom than it was to be a good dad for his kids. That's uh, horrible. Uh, and it sucked and it was petty and he's a piece of shit. And uh, it was just really hard for all of us. And one of the ways we found peace and one of the ways that we found safety and one of the places we could come together as a family was playing tabletop games at our dining room table. And that would have been back in those days, apples to apples, gold digger, um, probably sorry, the VHS version of Trivial Pursuit. Those yes, yes. And then when they were old enough, I introduced them to D&D &D and Nolan loved it and Ryan didn't. Um, but when the family gets together now, we will play. Uh, they were just here. The kids were just out here for the first time since the pandemics that we had the whole family together. Um, and we played Ticket to Ride and Sushi Go basically until our hands fell off. Uh, <laughs> so like of all the nerdy things that that like have been woven into the fabric of, of Team Wheaton, um, gaming really is a thing that really that we always come back to. Um, it is a place where we were really safe and really protected when our lives were very much under siege. Um, and now it is a way for us to celebrate what we accomplished, what we survived, and what we built by working together. That's so cool. Hmm. How cool indeed. I love those stories. Thank you so much for taking time to be here and uh, talk about the book, talk about some of uh, your life. It's just been a blast. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, and thank you for giving me the giving me your time. And thanks for spending time with my book. I, oh, that means a lot to me. I, it's been a yeah. great read. It, actually, it was an audio book, but can I still say I read it? Or do I have to clarify? <laughs> yeah, um, uh, uh, I, uh, uh, I'm qualified to, to say, yes, you are allowed to call it that. <sighs> Finally got Score. that question answered. <laughs> Will Wheaton's yeah. talked to me in my ear the whole book. He, he's the <laughs> <Yeah. other>. So, <laughs> All right, Will. Thank, thank you, you so sir. much. All right. You well, boys. Thanks, See you. All right, and there it was, our conversation with Will Wheaton. Boy, that was a lot of fun. That was a blast. It's always crazy just to hear kind of the backgrounds. Yeah. yeah. There's so much I didn't know. I had no idea. Yeah. I feel bad about the whole, shut up, Wesley, type thing now. <laughs> well, you know, you have to kind of take them in two, in two different hands, I think. But uh, I know what you're saying. Yeah. I know what you're saying. But, uh, yeah, strongly recommend the book. It is really mm -hmm. good. Uh, you know, his present self looking at what his past self said and kind of having a back and forth. It's it's very interesting while kind of being walked through his life, you know, mm -hmm. during his whole growing yeah. up. It's, an, it's, it's really good. So I encourage people to check it out. And I also encourage you to go to willwheaton.net to uh, read on his, uh, I think it's daily still, his, his blog. Mm -hmm. He's still blogging. He's still blogging. And to uh, find him on social media at It's Will Wheaton. And I just want to thank him so much again for taking time to be here. And I think that's going to do it. So, Jack, what do we have on the website? Go to CandairPodcast.com where you can listen, like, follow, subscribe, become a patron, buy some merch, see some YouTube videos. And if you'd like to be a guest and promote your work, send us an email on our contacts page. 
And don't forget to find us on Twitter at CannedAirPod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air. And again, if you want to show some support, many different ways for you to do it. You can get on iTunes or your podcast player of choice and just leave a quick review. You can go to our website, Jack just said, CannedAirPodcast.com. Go to our merch page, get a t-shirt, hat, stickers, mugs, whatever you can think of over there. And of course, our Patreon page, where for 5 to $10 a month, you get access to a ton of extra content. And don't forget to check us out on evergreenpodcast.com. There it is. We anything else, gentlemen? No, I think that's it. I think that wraps everything up in a nice little package. So until next time, I am Jeremy Colley. I'm Jack Doherty. And I'm Randy Hardenbrook. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and be excellent to each other. Oh, no! Don't run! It'll only make things worse! What? Remember, you never want to approach a stray dog, especially one that's foaming at the mouth. Get away from the animal as quickly as you can and tell a grown-up. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! This has been a Canned Air production. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.